listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Hey, check that out. That's our new theme. It was uh, written and performed by yours truly and engineered in Ankrum, New York at my buddy George Mantelloni's studio. Enough about that. Let me also mention that we're coming to you from the Clubhouse Studios here in beautiful downtown Rhinebeck, New York. I'm so thrilled that our guest today is a wonderful uh, drummer extraordinaire and a producer and all-around great musician. I'm talking about Gary Burke. Gary, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. It's been a while since it's, I've seen you. It's always it is. great. I can't see. imagine what we're going to talk about. I'm you know what? I waiting have no, spellbound. I have no plan. I have no plan. <laughs> We're just we're just flying blind. Pardon the expression. Yeah. Actually, you know, one of the things I love about doing this show is musicians that I know and ones that I don't know. I always learn things that I never knew about them. I mean, you know, I think I met you somewhere in the late '80s or something like that. I, I probably yeah. I, I know very little about your history prior to that time, and a lot about your history since that time. So, let me just jump in and ask a, a little Gary Burke uh, history here. I know that you've for a long time lived in Hurley, New York, across the river in Ulster County. A lot of our guests come from Ulster County, it seems. But yeah, actually, West Hurley. West Hurley, yes. Yeah, yeah. But are you from the Hudson Valley originally, or did you yeah. escape here from no, some... No, no, no. I, I escaped, but I got caught. <laughs> they brought was, you back. It was an attempted escape. Uh, I, I was born in Troy, New York. Oh, in Troy. Yeah. That's which the, would, I never that, that would be the upper... Hudson Valley. Yeah, you know? very upper. Yeah. Spent all my time there until I went away to college. Went from college to New York City. Went from New York City to out on the road. And here we are. You know, when I listen to your drumming, speaking of college, when I listen to you drum, it sounds like such a schooled approach. I know you know a lot about music theory. You write horn parts. You do a lot of stuff. Are you a schooled drummer? Did, do you have a degree in it? Did you go to school for that? Technically speaking, yes. But uh, the funny thing is that my first teacher in Troy, New York, um, things, I mean, things were so bad, we didn't even have drums to play on. So we would, I'd play on the heel of my shoe. And, yeah. and my teacher at that time, George Riley, he was a great guy. And he actually grew up when he was a kid playing in vaudeville and then playing silent movies and things like that. So he was, he, he was a pit, what was known as a pit drummer at that time. And the interesting thing about it is he, he gave me a great foundation, but I think the primary takeaway from the, my time, when I think back on him, is he taught me how to fake. The important ingredient is to fake with complete confidence, you know, <laughs> because if you do it that way, they'll buy it. So what is a great drummer like you need to fake for? What well, does that mean exactly? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, well, um, you know... Uh, you know, we, we had like a little Christmas show we had to do, and there was, of course, no drum part, so I had to make them up. And he said, every time you see a half note, you do a roll, and the other stuff, you just make it up as you go along and keep smiling, you know, and they'll leave you alone. So, uh, but as far as faking, it's, uh, I think it's an attitude, you know, it's an attitude of confidence. You walk out on stage and there's nothing, you're bulletproof, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Yeah. It's that simple. That really goes a long way. It goes because you you don't let your head get messed with, you know. And there's a lot of situations, a lot of professional situations, like, for instance, heavy reading gigs or uh, you're in studio situations, things like that, that could be intimidating by virtue of who may be on the date or by virtue of how difficult the music is and things like that. And you just sort of... Uh, 
start your starting point is above all that, you know, and it's it's a great place to be. You're you're a little bit uh, insulated, you know, from things that could bring you down. So I think that's what fakie is. What is well, what it morphed into, you know, for me. And so many drummers and other musicians in this area and beyond this area really admire you. Who who do you look up to, and who have you looked up to as a drummer, particularly over the years that either you, you idolized or maybe gleaned a few things from? Who who are the people you admire? The guy who's in my blood the most would be Art Blakey. In a lot of people's uh, blood. There was a visceral connection there with the way he would play when I was in formation, shall we say. You know, when I was young and and uh, wide open to a lot of influences. There's all the great drummers, uh, you know, Buddy and Krupa and Davey Tuff and Billy guys Joe. like that. You know, and yeah, we can bring it right up. I mean, there, yeah. there's just, you know, everybody stands on everybody else's shoulders. Although I have to say that I don't think Buddy stands on anybody's shoulders, you know. But when when I heard Art, he it all turned around for me, and and uh, this is this is the guy I want to spend listening to, and which I did. And he was a great jazz player and a great bop player, but he never lost his sense of swing and his sense of time. He had impeccable time. And uh, even I, his last recording, which he did with, of all people, Dr. John. Doctor, when he was, uh, I think he was in his late 80s. Not, not Dr. John, but Art. His playing is unbelievable. Yeah, know? I didn't know he worked with Dr. John. Yeah, just I think it's just this one time, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it was really a beautiful session. What was it? Uh, I can't, Louisiana something. I can't remember the name of the, the record now. They, they did a couple of records. Anyway, even though he he himself lived in that climate of uh, really hectic, daunting playing, you know, in the in the bop era and, and things post-bop and stuff, he, he always was a swinger, you know, he just, from beginning to end, and uh, he had a great philosophy, you know, of playing. Believe it or not, one of the uh, outstanding shuffles, uh, mm. which uh, you, you don't necessarily associate with players like that. But no. Beautiful, beautiful shuffle. What about Joe Morello? What do you think of him? Joe Morello is tremendous. Mm. Joe, Joe, I actually saw him do a clinic when I was probably like <sighs> 11 years old or something like wow. that. And, uh, and I'll, I'll never forget his... Uh, his single stroke role that he did. You know, he was in Albany, New York, and uh, it was quite something. Uh, I don't remember too much else about the clinic, uh, except he talked about the million dollar beat, which is his version of what rock and roll was. You know, he, that was sort of a goof that he did. But his, uh, he's he's like, um, in his prime, there, there was probably nobody with uh, more grace and elegance in, in his playing Dan Morello. Yeah, I love I love this playing. You know, you go back and listen to the original album of Take Five, which by the way, for people of interest, was done at Studio C in New York. It's a, it's just it's beautiful. It's explosive and graceful all at the same time. And it's uh, what a great album you referenced. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, Paul Desmond and and uh, I don't know if that's Paul Chambers. No, Eugene Wright. Eugene Wright. Yeah, okay. yeah. But that's a wonderful album. I love Brubeck and big yeah. jazz fan in general. Yeah. 
You've done so much stuff, Gary. You played with so many people. Is it fair to say that you're best known for your work with Joe Jackson? I would think so, probably, because I spent a lot of time with him. I spent many years with him. You know, we did have uh, top ten records and things like that. Yeah. So, so uh, probably. How many uh, records you guys make together? I don't know. It's hard to say. Ten or twelve, maybe. Yeah. A lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work. And some, you know, some of those are records that were. I mean, you have to count the records that were done overseas that uh, you know never made it here and things like that. And so uh, it's it's that was it was a busy time, you know. And that was a a, a long stretch where pretty much uh, I mean, it started I started with him in '83 or '84, somewhere around there. And I think the last record I did with him was in 2000, maybe. Maybe a little bit before then. There, were, there was time off in that. It, it wasn't one con- consecutive roll of record after record after record, but a lot of road work, too. A lot yeah. of touring. Joe Jackson has had a, a big effect on me, a big influence on, on my music. I, when I think of uh, Joe Jackson, I first think of Look Sharp because it was just such a startlingly original sound. And, uh, you know, it's so stark, all the sounds on it. And it's like melodic punk, you know. It was. I remember being a kid and getting that record. And I know you're not on that record, but um, one that you are on that I love is Jump and Jive. And, you know, we were just talking about jazz. And it occurred to me, I mean, Joe Jackson, he, he changes his styles and he's got all these different, uh, he's got so much, so much to offer, so many different things that he, he's trying to do with his records. He doesn't seem to sit, to stay in the same place very long. Did you find you had to adapt your style to some of that music? Like, obviously, you play jazz because that's what Jump and Jive is, essentially. Well, interestingly enough, I'm not on Jump and Jive. Oh, you're not. But we did do the soundtrack to the Tucker. Oh film. yes, the Francis Ford Coppola. And, and that's uh, that's the Jump and Jive band in the London studio. So it was sort of like uh, the sequel. You know, yeah. So we did. We did get to do the, all the big band stuff, and uh, it was great. And of course, Francis Ford Coppola was there in the studio with us the whole time, which I found. Uh, I kept asking myself why. You know, but <laughs> you told but, me he was writing everything down. He he was recording every moment of his life into like this computer or something. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, yeah, which was pre-computer. You know, pre-computer. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was probably recording it into like some sort of uh, cassette format or something like that. But he was. He's a very unusual person. And I remember also he was designing a stamp of himself, <laughs> which. Kind of sounds what you say is kind of sounds very egotistical, but but he's not like that, you know. I mean, he has a gigantic ego. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but it's uh, he's put it to good use. Let's put it that way. I'll say, yeah, you know, yeah, and um, makes his own wine too. Yeah, and was very forthcoming and very open about his family, his uh, bankruptcies, and uh, how how many how often he's been broke, <laughs> you know. Um, so he's a very charming guy, very endearing, I have to say. You know, back to Joe Jackson, um, I could talk about Francis Ford Coppola all day, by the way, but I won't. But there was a really interesting project, and I know you're on this one, um, that Joe did. It was uh, Big World, the yeah. Big World album. What's fascinating to me about it, and I, I'm, maybe you can shed some light on this, I don't really understand the concept. From what I understand, it's a live record. I think you guys were touring Europe or something, or, or you're playing shows over there. And Joe wanted to record it live, but he wanted the audience to be silent. 
And, you know, for a musician, when you're done playing a song in front of an audience, you're expecting a reaction. It had to be really strange. And, wh and what was he... Strange was, is a good word. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was he trying to do? He it's a great was, record, by the way. I love well, the thanks. Record. Yeah, it is. Well, I'll, he was trying to capture the spirit of a live performance. Now, a lot of times you hear, like, people do things live in the studio, but that's not quite the same. You know, yeah. Um, and but he didn't want to. Any, I mean, the only way you get that is to go out there in front of people and do it for them. But but at the same time, he didn't want to get into what he considered all the noise related to performing at say a big venue or something like that in front of people. Mm -hmm. So he would instruct people to. Uh, <laughs> To not react at the end of the song. I mean, you have an entire audience. Yeah, I know. Not and, supposed and, to react. And we did this at the what was it called the Roundabout Theater, which I think was probably about maybe three thousand or something like that. It wasn't tremendously huge, but it was. That's a lot of people to wrangle. You know? Yeah. And um, so it had this strange restriction on the whole thing, and it. And I'll never forget. We had a, we, 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 so we did we did about a week there. We would do two shows a night. They turn the sh they turn the house over after the first show, bring in another audience, do the second show, and then if um, are you expecting a boat? Uh, no, I'm excited. <laughs> that was a, that's a Chris Craft actually. Just, oh, uh, oh, look at that. Okay, his name's so, going to come up in a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, after the last show, and they'd let everybody out. If there were any problems we would cut another track then. Now, all of this was done to two-track. And, and the, uh, this, the, the album had the distinction of being the first album ever recorded that was mixed before it was played. Because what we would do is we toured small clubs with the record, and they would bring in this two-track thing, and they would practice mixing the record as we did these club dates. And they would make their notes so that at the end... It was as if we recorded like to to disc or something like that. It, it it was done. With the last note, it was it was recorded. It was performed. It was mixed, and it, and I don't know if they even did the mastering at that point in time. I don't remember that. But so all the moves, all the moves that had to be done were you know they had their three by five index cards. The there was a couple engineers and multiple assistants and uh they were they were going they were performing themselves as engineers which was interesting you hmm. know so this it did have the same but the funny thing about it is there was one song we just couldn't get the song called hometown which is a lovely song that joe did and it's about his hometown and it's for him you know kind of melancholy and emotional and uh so it was the song. We did it every show. We did it after the audience went out at night, and we just could not get the definitive performance. We were getting towards the end where there's only so many shows left, you know, and we, did, and we finally did this one song, and this guy went, yeah, Joe, at the end, oh, you know? Oh. And, and he, he just cast again, said, Thanks for ruining it. Now we can't use that. You know, I mean, can you imagine if you? <laughs> but you did end up getting it because yeah, we, it's on the album. Yeah, it is yeah, we song. did get it, and uh, the we did. It may have even been 
after the last show on the last night, after the last audience went out, we did it by ourselves, you know. But I mean, was, couldn't you just weed that guy out? I mean, maybe by today's standards, uh, um, technology you could, but I don't know. About I think it was time. a matter of principle with Joe because <laughs> he, he wanted his audience in total obedience to him. Right. You know? So, <laughs> an enigmatic artist, Joe Jackson. But, but oh, now here's another thing from that. The one thing I have to say about being around like some really terrific artists is their work ethic, and he would come in from. We would do, like I said, we would do two shows. Sometimes we would do this thing afterwards. And he would come in the next day with reams of notes, handwritten, and he would hand them out to everybody. Everybody got notes. Everybody got notes. The engineers, all the musicians, <laughs> the backup vocalists. And, I mean, just to do that in real time. I mean, he, I can't imagine how he even slept during the whole the whole week, you know. Hmm. Wow. And tremendous work ethic. Oh, and one other factor that entered into this uh, just <laughs> is the whole thing was being filmed. And uh, not videotaped, but filmed, you know. And uh, the all, all of the uh, cameramen had to, you know, were instructed with the whole silence thing and you can't make any noise and you can't be in the way and you can't be obstructive in any way and and do your job, you know. So it was, the, the, the tension was unbelievable. So uh, I do remember that and a lot of tension. You know, when I met you, you were working on a Joe Jackson album at the time, which I happen to think is his masterpiece in my personal opinion, my humble opinion, is Blaze of Glory, which I think is an incredible album and incredibly underrated as well. I think it's one of the best albums of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And you were working on it when we first worked together. And uh, I remember then hearing it, and I mean, a lot of great drum stuff on there. My favorite, probably my favorite, I'll call it drum song on the album, is Rant and Rave. And uh, I'd love to have our listeners hear a piece of it so they kind of get an idea of oh, sure. what I'm talking about. Uh, hey, Rusty, let it roll, man.
That's great, Gary. I love the drums in that. Love the drums, by the way. Speaking of big world, I, I love your drumming on um, Soul Kiss. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. That's a great one, too. But kind of moving on from Joe Jackson and, to, and moving on from drums for a minute and into producing. You also produce. You produce a lot of stuff for a lot of people. Uh, how long have you been doing that? Since the 80s. Uh, it was just a decision after doing Body and Soul with Joe. I just I was fascinated with the engineers and producers, and I thought, gee, that's something I, I want to do that, you know, and uh, I want to add that aspect to things. And uh, so it started then. I had no idea what I was doing, and it, it just sort of grew and accumulated over years. Did you learn stuff from the guys that you worked with as producers, like Eddie Reinsdale or uh, David Kirschenbaum? Or I think, did you? David Kirschenbaum was was actually a big deal. Uh, for me because first of all he's from LA which in Manhattan you stand out like 
Well, like a fern plant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he came in with the bleach blonde hair and uh, the pajama pants long before they were fashionable, you know. And uh, he was one uh, cool L.A. dude uh, and, uh, and is kind of a piece of exotica, you know, at the session. We would walk around and stare at him and... <laughs> trying to figure out what exactly this thing was in our presence, you know. But he had a great sense of a lot of different things. And, and uh, he I don't think he was particularly, you know, like producers come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are very schooled, some of them are musicians, some aren't. I don't think he was ever a musician, but he seemed to have sort of like uh, a film director's sensibility about him. You know, and and uh, he never lost sight of the overall arc of the the record he was making. You know where it was headed, and the I mean he you know you may be working on one track, but he's thinking of how that fits in to the other nine. Mm -hmm. You know, and things like that, and and does this move the storyline along? You know. Things like that. And so it was great being around him. There's, uh, you know, Jimmy Iovine, I worked with him, and Jimmy Wisner, who is, who's kind of a throwback, yeah. you know, uh, to another era. And it was great working with him. So, yeah, sure, you get something off of everybody. You know, John Platania was here a few weeks ago on the show, and he's produced his share of stuff. And I asked him, is there a John Platania production sound? And he said, no. He said, some guys have it, some guys don't. So you know, Daniel Lenoir has got it. You know, when when Prince made a, a record for somebody, you, you recognize his production. Um, but John said, I, "I stay out of the way of the musicians, and and that I don't have a particular sound." Is there a Gary Burke production sound? I don't know if I can answer that. I don't know. Uh, there might be. You know, to my ears, there absolutely is. I mean, you've produced some stuff with me, and, and we'll get to that later, but. I've heard that stuff for a long, long time over the years, and to my ears, I, I hear. I, I'm not sure I could put my finger on exactly what it is, but yeah. if, if somebody said, if somebody played me something now and said, "Who do you think produced that?" and it was, you know, say done here at the clubhouse or something, I, I, I would, I think I would know if it was something you produced. Uh, I'm familiar with that sound because okay. I heard a lot of stuff that you you produced. So uh, I don't have that objectivity, uh, but. Uh, I suspect there is a sound, you know, because there's there's things I like, and uh, also that I've tended to play on things I produce on, which you know you start influencing things heavily that way. I actually tried to get away from that where I was producing without playing on the tracks. Uh, it's very difficult to do because everybody wants you to play. So this hark this question kind of harkens back to what I was asking earlier. I never actually did get an answer uh, about uh, schooling, but um, I notice you you write the horn arrangements on a lot of stuff that you produce. Where does that come from? How how'd you learn how to do that? And well, okay, schooling. Uh, got a bachelor's out of Potsdam in music education of all things, uh, and then I went to New York, went to the Manhattan School of Music, got a master's in performance there. Um, however, the uh, the uh, the arranging aspect of things is something I've always been interested in. Uh, never really schooled in it whatsoever, uh, and just just like producing is something I just 
well, if I'm going to do this, I just got to jump in and do it. So when the opportunity came up to do string parts or horn parts or, you know, uh, string quartet or something like that, uh, even uh, symphony orchestras and stuff like that over the years, I've done those as well. And uh, you just sort of like, I maybe this is where that faking uh, aspect comes in, you know, ah. is you just walk through the door and start doing it. And if they don't like it, they'll throw you out. You Trial know? by fire. Yeah, yeah. There's a local artist, songwriter by the name of Chris Kraft, and one of your latest productions is his album. I've had the privilege of hearing some of the stuff off it. Love it. It's got those horns on it. You wrote those arrangements? Yeah, yeah. Great arrangements. And who are those guys? Is that Tony Aiello on there? Uh, let's see. Um, that's Tony Aiello and Walter Barrett on low brass. And then from Syracuse, who brought in Jeff Stockham, who is... Um, he's He straddles that world of the, uh, uh, the pop and R&B thing, but also... Uh, works out in the Syracuse area with the symphony out there and stuff. So he's got a beautiful classical tone, which is really special. And he's also a multi-instrumentalist in his idiom. In other words, like he comes in and he's got trumpets. He's got trumpets in B-flat and C and D and piccolo trumpets and cornets that are... 150 years old and and uh, flugelhorn and all kinds of stuff and very inventive. Oh, French horn as well. Oddly enough, he's and uh, and and he also is a, a very good jazz player. You know, so like he he can uh, sit there and play French horn and take a couple courses. You mm -hmm. know, which is uh, pretty unusual actually. Well, I'd love to hear something off this album. I'd love to uh, let our listeners hear something off it. It definitely has that Gary Burke production sound, if you ask me. Okay. Part of that, I think, is you playing on it because you're you know the drummer. But not just that. You you seem to assemble a very similar team for a lot of your productions. I know it was true many years ago on the stuff that you produced for me, and still to this day, you work with Graham. Maybe you work with Joel Diamond, I believe. Yes. Uh, yourself on drums, John Platania on guitar. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the Gary Burke production team, isn't it? It is. Uh, you know, it's kind of uh, my little wrecking crew, you know, and, uh, <laughs> which sounds like my little pony. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I trust them. They're, they're impeccable players, and they have the range of sensibility that I can call on, uh, and, and I... And they surprise me. They, when I think I, I know what they're capable of, they turn around and say, you don't even know the half of it. You know? <laughs> they are great players, yeah, no yeah, doubt about that. Yeah. Let's play something off the album. Please, 
of your career you played with so many people the first group or artist I should say that I heard you play with even before I knew you was Greg Kroll and I, I know you produced a lot of stuff for him drummed on a lot of the guy had like tons of material it seems yeah. I'm not sure if I ever met 
Greg or not, I think he was, wasn't he like a brain surgeon up in Albany or something? Yes, it's amazing. It's, uh, uh, I just remember the song Boom Shake because it had yeah. that great drum part. And I thought, I'll never work with a guy like that. <laughs> and then, uh, then we worked together about a year later. Um, but again, we'll get to that later. I, I want to talk about a few people that you work with that, that kind of stand out. One of them is Willie Amrod. How long have you played with Willie? As I told Paul, we came in this year to do a 25th anniversary remix of Children of the Earth. And I just turned to Paul and said, this is my life's work. <laughs> so you ask me a question like that, I'm going to say all my life, you know. Right. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, we work for a very compacted time uh, on Children of the Earth, and it was uh, it was it was a really glorious recording time because we had uh, we had the JBs as the horn section. Now the JBs that stands for James Brown, and we had uh, Pee Wee Ellis, Fred Wesley, and Maceo Parker as the horn section. Wow! And that alone was worth the price of admission. That was like. You want to? You, you ask me a question. Where where did you learn how to do arrangements? Well, I watched these guys up close and personal for a week in the studio, and it was transformative uh, as an experience. Quite an illustrious group, though. Well, each one of those guys was uh, uh, was a, uh, an MD for James at one yeah. time or another you know damn well together at once is quite was it's quite exceptional and uh, they to this day uh, they've you know I'm, I still find myself thinking about certain things they did during that session I was thinking like how'd they do that you know it's like because they was there were they had worked so many years on the road with James and work together uh, that it, it, it's, it's that thing where musicians, you know, have that sense of communicating that's nonverbal and it's just like a look on your face or a twitch in your hand and you know where they're going and um, you can't manufacture that kind of understanding. It only comes one way and that's by logging hour after hour after hour on a stage with these people. And, and becoming, I guess, you know, in a sense, you, you sort of get into their consciousness. You know? So you actually understand them from inside out as opposed to outside in. Mm. And um, these guys were definitely that way. They did stuff that today affects me as how I run a session if it's got horns on it. For, I'll give you a couple examples. The one, the, the one thing, uh, we, we would do a track, I'd play a track down. A lot of times... They didn't work off in arrangements. They just they were sort of beyond all that, and, and they weren't just doing what's called head arrangements, which you know are sort of a cheap way to get a horn section through a tune. You know, um, they uh, they'd say, "Okay, go to the ride out," and so I said, "Okay." So Paul would cue it up, and we play the ride out, and they they you know Bob and they do a couple licks, and all of a sudden, all three of them are doing licks like this. Okay, go to the front of the tune and run it down. And I swear to God that they would do completed takes on one pass. And it's and when I say completed takes, I'm talking about composed music. It, it's not just 
riffs here and there, little solos and stuff, you know, get by stuff. This is through composed from from the intro to the outro. It's a it's a composition. Did they compose they it on the fly? They, they did doing? some of it on the fly. I yeah. swear to God. Wow. You know? I could point it out to you in different places. Now, not every track was done that way, you know, but they they did that and um, their voicings and uh, it's just unbelievable, just truly unbelievable. Great stuff. Yeah, and and really unique. Yeah, I mean, even among horn players, these guys are like you know gigantic. Oh yeah, you know. You know so so you got the JBs on that record, and uh, you know NRBQ was a big factor. Uh, they came in and did some stuff with Willie. We would have, let's see, who else? Uh, you know, Rob Leon was on that on bass. Who's uh, no. Rob is no longer with us, you yeah. know. But, uh, uh, you know, speaking about the gigantic players, I mean, he was definitely one. Another local musician with uh, an amazing reputation. I think Rob lived in Woodstock. Yeah. He, he was, he cast a big shadow as a bass player. Yeah, yeah. And even Eddie Ronsdale uh, made that record, believe it or not, on uh, theremin, uh, or actually it was uh, the keyboard equivalent of a theremin. Now I gotta hear it. Willie Amrod, Gary Burke on drums, let it roll.
You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we hope you're enjoying part one of this interview with renowned Hudson Valley drummer, Gary Burke. Please come back next week for part two. There's so much more to come.